Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. It's Wednesday, August 4th. This is The Gateway. I'm Wayne Pratt. A judge has put St. Louis County's mask mandate on hold. It's a decision supported by some on the county council, including member Tim Fitch. The council's all ears. Sit, let's sit down with this county executive. Sit down with this health department. Tell us why you want to do what you want to do instead of working around us. The ruling was sparked by a lawsuit from Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who has filed a similar case against a mask mandate in Kansas City. That temporary restraining order stops St. Louis County's mask mandate at least until August 17th. St. Louis Public Radio's Chad Davis reports on yesterday's ruling by a circuit court judge. It comes a week after County Executive Sam Page joined the city in issuing a mask mandate following a rise in coronavirus cases. Judge Ellen Roboto said the restraining order is necessary since Page and the county council are arguing what should be enforced, leaving the public not knowing what they have to do. Attorney General Eric Schmidt says the mandate breaks a new state law restricting local leaders from issuing public health orders for businesses. The county council also voted 5-2 to two to strike the order down. Schmidt called the ruling a victory. Page says in a tweet that he's disappointed in the judge's decision and recommends people follow the CDC's guidelines to wear masks in public places. I'm Chad Davis, St. Louis Public Radio. With the renewed restriction tied up in court, a St. Louis County Council member wants another vote on a mask mandate. Lisa Clancy has introduced legislation that would require county residents to wear masks indoors. Clancy's legislation could have an uphill battle as two Democrats joined with the council's three Republicans last week to strike down the mandate. But Clancy says she has received an overwhelming amount of support from the public for such a move. Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush says the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's decision to extend an eviction moratorium is a win for people who are months behind on rent. The federal extension runs through October 3rd for counties with high coronavirus transmission levels. Bush and other housing advocates spent time on the House steps in Washington for several days, urging President Joe Biden to extend the ban. It's our work as humans to end human suffering and then to fight against any place where we see the possible perpetuation of it. Bush says officials throughout the country need to release $46 billion in federal aid to help people pay their bills. Governor Mike Parson has pardoned a St. Louis couple who gained national attention for pointing guns at protesters. Parson has pardoned Mark and Patricia McCloskey. The two attorneys pleaded guilty this year to misdemeanors in connection with an incident last summer where they pointed guns at demonstrators walking by their central West End house. Republicans throughout the country rallied around the couple's cause. McCloskey detractors have pushed back against the idea that they were acting in self-defense, saying instead they overreacted to people who were not posing any threat. Mark McCloskey announced earlier this year that he is running for the U.S. Senate as a Republican. A new documentary called Ferguson Rises will be screened this weekend just ahead of the anniversary of Michael Brown Jr.'s death on Monday. It takes a more intimate look at the day Brown was shot and killed by a Ferguson police officer, the protests, and how it all affected his family. Michael Brown Sr. says this is not the first documentary that's captured his pain, but it's one of the first that understood his story. Other docs had other people that were, uh, that had a voice 
but this is definitely focusing on a father's perspective on how he feels. The private screening will be at the Emerson Performance Center at Harris Stowe State University on Saturday. It's one of several events planned this weekend by the Michael Brown Chosen for Change Foundation. Rural areas are some of the last places to get high-speed Internet access. They were also the last areas to receive electricity decades ago. Back then, the federal government set up cooperatives to help rural residents pay to install poles and lines to every farmhouse. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine examines how bringing broadband to rural communities might be more complicated. In Okima, Oklahoma, Wi-Fi hotspots are in demand. The public library got six of the T-Mobile internet hookups in 2018. The waitlist was months long before they eventually got more. It was a constant battle to, to get people off that waiting list, and we don't have that problem now because we have so many. She says logging onto the web is important for the town of 3000. It's not just for kicking it and watching Netflix. Internet access means jobs. And nowadays, most employers are, are requesting you fill out online applications for jobs, and that's difficult for people because they didn't have access to it. For most people in cities, it's just a matter of calling up the local cable or telephone provider. But right now, one in five people in rural communities like Okima can't do that, according to the Federal Communications Commission. It's not so different from the situation with electricity nearly a century ago when it was available in cities, but not small towns or farms. For families, that meant hand-washing clothes and working by the light of a lantern. And old documentaries showed how lack of power could hurt a farmer's pocketbook. It's hard to cool milk right in August if you haven't the right sort of pump or equipment. The milk is sour, so the handler gives back cartons and the farmer loses money. Sour milk, good for pigs. But the milk check won't be so big this month. The solution to all this? The Rural Electrification Act. It gave low-interest loans to rural communities to form rural electric co-ops. Then, they'd set up the electric lines and poles. It'd all be paid off in 30 years through monthly electric bills. Rural broadband faces the same basic challenge as electricity. For-profit companies don't want to invest. Hamid Vahadipur is the CEO of Lake Region Electric Cooperative, which provides broadband. In rural areas, you can have less than 10 customers for every mile of fiber optics that you have, where in town, that number could go as high as 50 or 70 customers per mile. So it is difficult to provide this kind of service. Bringing broadband to rural areas is more complicated than electricity. One of the reasons, there are already some providers, but they don't always provide truly high-speed access. Co-ops are interested in providing that service, but the cost might be too high even without the need to make a profit. Cooperatives share the cost of building broadband, just like they did when they built electricity. Chris Myers is the general manager of the Oklahoma Association of Rural Electric Cooperatives. He says the bills might be too high for smaller co-ops. That cost might be $500 a month. Well, I don't know that people can afford that. Uh, and that's just a number. But, I'm, but just to break even, the cost would be so high that it'd be, it'd be a problem. About $4 billion a year have gone out to telephone companies to get them to expand broadband. 
Tom Wheeler, the former chair of the FCC, says it didn't work. It wasn't working because we still have this huge swath of rural America that doesn't have access to broadband. Instead, Wheeler says building broadband infrastructure needs to be handled more like roads. Build it once and pay for it and go home. Instead of this trickling out of money um, to companies that were basically telephone companies in the hope that they would expand and build broadband. The FCC estimates it would take about $80 billion to bring broadband to every home. Between Biden's proposed infrastructure bill and CARES Act money, experts like Wheeler remain hopeful that it might happen sooner rather than later. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media covers agricultural issues in the Midwest. Shula Newman is the executive editor of St. Louis Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Music by Ryan McNeely of Adult Fur. I'm Wayne Pratt. This has been The Gateway. Support comes from Mosby Building Arts, a design-build company committed to remodeling the right way. Visit callmosby.com to get project inspiration for any room of your house.